Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So the other day, I was out the front of my house dealing with my car, and my next-door neighbor was there. And that weekend, he was telling me he'd met his daughter's boyfriend who got a record player, and daughter's boyfriend is very proud of his reggae collection, which I don't think was particularly extensive, but he had some reggae records, you know. And he was kind of trying to impress potential father-in-law with his, you know, knowledge of reggae records. This is how the world is nowadays, Mark. It wasn't like this in, back in the day when you and I were in this position. I would and have it, loved it if uh, a suitor of one of my children tried to impress me with their <laughs> reggae collection. That's perfect. So I anyway. Push it on an open door. Go on. So anyway, my next door neighbour, because having that kind of slight streak of male competitiveness that none of us can ever quite, you know, conceal decided he was going to go to a second-hand record shop and he was going to buy what he considered a slightly better reggae record than the ones that his potential son-in-law had, okay? And so he came back from the shop with uh, with this, actually. He comes back with Two Sevens Clash oh, by yeah. Culture. You've got this. Everybody know knows it. it. Yes? Know it, yeah. Came out in 1977. It's, it's kind of, a, if you like Burning Spear, you probably like Culture. You know, it's, it was a slightly further out than uh, the Burning Spear. Anyway, this got me quite excited because Tom's standing outside and he's, he's produced this from his car. He's got this copy of Two Sevens Clash. And I fondled it and so forth. And I felt the weight of it. And then I said, just hang on there a second. And I went inside the camera at the top of the house and came down with my copy of Two Sevens Clash by Culture, which is a Jamaican import from 1977. Because I'm then slightly trying to get a one-up on, on my next-door neighbor. Couldn't help trying yourself. to get a slight one-up <laughs> one on his potential studio. And we're standing there out, out, out in the side of the street on, in a little a suburban street on a weekday. Two white chaps who are both grandfathers, okay? And I thought, if anybody drives past and they look out, they think, do you know, I've seen something I never thought I would ever see in London. 
in the, you know, the, the extraordinary range and diversity of London. If a man is tired of London, he's tired of life. And uh, eventually you get to see two blokes standing in a suburban street comparing copies, copies of the two sevens clash. Mine's heavier vinyl. <laughs> yeah, I win. That's, That's fantastic. fantastic. And then and, uh, uh, boring each other with details. Because it's all about all about the 7th of July 77, wasn't it? Yes, album? it was. Absolutely. Isn't that right? It was it it was. Marcus Garvey predicted that something was going to happen on 7 7 hence the two sevens clashing. He wasn't I don't know too, what it was he predicted. He wasn't too hot on predictions, Marcus Garvey. Interesting man, though. Have you ever read that book about Marcus Garvey called Negro with a Hat? No. Really interesting story. Genuinely really interesting story. Um, More going on there than you might think, but probably not in the line of prophecy. Anyway, anyway, I just thought that would amuse you. And uh, so I'd share that with you. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So Talking Heads news, uh, which always interests me because I adore Talking Heads. Talking Heads are in some kind of truce, aren't they? Oh, are well, they? This Good is group. a group that that split up very, very acrimoniously, as most groups do eventually, and last got together, I think, to play the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. That is 19 years ago. 20 years ago, God. I'm talking about. 20 years ago. And Stop Making Sense, the fantastic concert film uh, by Jonathan Demme, is about to be re-released theatrically. Quite right, because I personally think it's possibly the best concert film ever made. No, it's, it's not. coming out, I think, on September the 11th, and it's at the Toronto Film Festival, and they're getting together to be interviewed, the four of them, by Spike Lee, which I think is quite interesting, actually, and I think that's a bit of an olive branch. And David Byrne has given this little interview talking about how he's terribly regretful about the way he behaved when they split up. And they split up, I mean, God, soon after it stopped making sense, didn't they, in the mid-80s, you know, because he was, and the Tom Tom Club happened and all that, because he was just, he said, I was, I was a little tyrant at the time. And he said he was really badly behaved and really difficult to get on with. He's obviously very, very uh, apologetic about it. So that film is coming out. That's right. So A, there's the possibility, which is a very exciting one, that the Talking Heads might reunite. Uh, B, that film is coming out, which I think is amazing. I'm sorry. Do you not think that's just an exceptional film? I think it's very good. I think it's very good because it it has a really good central idea. I watched it again not long ago. and uh, Yeah, because you told me about how you didn't like the opening. Well, no, it's it's, it's really intriguing. No, I do. No, let me get this straight. I do like because that's the central idea. That's what made John, Jonathan Demme think this is going to make a film, which is we'll start by David Byrne coming on the stage, plays the beatbox down, starts playing the, you know, the click track, and then he starts psycho with the guitar. Yeah. Psycho killer. And then and one slowly, by one, musicians arrived. Over a period of time, the musicians arrived. It's a, you know, and if you're going to get a filmmaker like Jonathan Demme to make a concept film, you have to have a conceit. It's not just enough to say, we're exciting, point your cameras at us and edit it to the best of your ability and it will be fine. You have to have an idea, which then the idea tends to get overplayed because it makes the filmmaker feel more comfortable about it. So it's like Martin Scorsese directed what is really the greatest concert film ever made, which is The Last Waltz. And the only way he convinced himself that it was a project worthy of his massive talent was to say, it's the last time. 
They've been on the road all their lives. Yeah. And now they're hanging on the rock and roll shoes. Of course, the truth was, they hadn't really been on the road all that long, really. Certainly not by contemporary standards. No. But Martin Scorsese needed that idea to make that film work. And then the only thing is, you know, as I've bored you on this subject many times in the past, the reason The Last Waltz is the greatest rock and roll uh, live in concert film is it's all two shots and three shots. So it's all, you it's all, all see, the, you see the musicians looking at each other. Yeah. And when you go to a concert, that's what you do. You look at how they look at each other. You're watching that absolutely all the time. Which is precisely how Bruce Springsteen's, uh, any of those, any of those stuff. That's how it, they it's the inner, stage. it's the inner drama it's of the looks group between him and Niels Lofgren. Or it, it, it's yeah. what, it's what makes it interesting. Yeah. Anyway, what I was saying to you about, watching um, that film again recently is how odd it is that David Byrne, when he goes to hit the high notes on the first number, Psycho Killer, just yeah. manifestly can't hit them. He can't get near them at all. Yeah. And, and you thought, if this was any other group, they would they'd say, stop, do it again. Do it again. You know, get somebody better to sing or whatever. The <laughs> No, but I, I, listen, I like David Byrne, and you know, I've got nothing against him at all. But here's the odd thing about that film is that you, you bring on musicians slowly until you've got about 10 of them there. And what the additional six all have in common is they're better musicians than the original four because that's just the way it is. You know what I mean? You're bringing on absolute hot shot session players, aren't you? Yeah. Whereas this is the punk rock group from CBGB. You know, they're bound to not be as good as that. So it's it's an intriguing contrast, I find. I'm trying to remember who they were. Bernie Worrell, is that right? It's all like those kind of people. people. You know, they're unbelievable players. It's a fantastic film, I think. And I love the idea that, you know, there's this idea that you get choreography with, with, uh, with live performance and you then get the performance. And it's one of those rare occasions where normally there's a load of back backing musicians and there are people front line of girl singers or whatever who are dancing. But there's an amazing sequence with um, Life During Wartime. Do you remember that? Oh, I think the girl singer. That's uh, the high step-in thing. The girl singers on the left, and then there's the guitarist and Tina Weymouth on the right. Tina Weymouth in a a kind of extraordinary kind of parachute jumpsuit, you know, and David Byrne in the middle. And throughout the entire thing, they're choreographed and they're in motion. In fact, any musician who's not playing a stationary instrument is in motion. And they're jumping up and down the entire time as she plays the bass guitar. It's fantastic. Every movement is choreographed. I think it's, I think it's one of the thrilling bits of uh, live performance I've ever seen. It's brilliant. Do you think they're getting back together again because they're, they're feeling that they ought to, because they're reaching an, an age where they ought to make up with each other. I think I think bands tend to go through this, don't you? You know. Well, whether they get back together or not, I don't know, but they've certainly he's certainly really regretful about the way he treated them. And it's quite quite big of him to come out and say that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was quite admiring of that. And uh, so, you know, you would like these people to to um to say whatever it is they want to say to each other before any of them you know, shuffles off their mortal coil. You know? This is it. This is it. Contrast that, of course, uh, with um, with the members of Pink Floyd, who who seem to be doing anything but trying to make up with each other. Fantastic, isn't it? 
It's absolutely oh awesome. my lord. I wonder if there's a been war a, between the Gilmore and I've never seen anything more vicious. Ne- never. Remember when Polly Sampson said that thing about him being anti-Semitic and uh, you know narcissistic and self-obsessed and all that, you know. And Gilmore simply endorsed the tweet, didn't he? He said something every word palpably true or something. He oh said, my just God. Read, I think I think that's all he said. And you think that is the most damning thing. How long did he spend <laughs> sitting there before he hit the button? I mean, that is just incredible, really. They, they they loathe and detest each other on a on a scale unequaled by uh, by most groups. I think this is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. As you'll know, if you're a patron supporter and you join us on Friday evenings for you know the way that, that all the best people start the weekend, which is with the the word quiz. Uh, as you'll know, we've switched the focus of this over the last few weeks, so it's no longer seeking to identify an act. You're now seeking to identify an album, preferably a well-known, you know, a classic album. And so we've done this over the last few weeks. And the one we've done this week is, well, it actually has two titles, doesn't it, really? Because it's the title that it's known by, and then there's the actual title that it has, Mark. Isn't that right? Absolutely right. In fact, not that many people know it as The Beatles, do they? Well, it is The Beatles. Which is an extraordinary thing in itself. The idea that after Sergeant Pepper, they would have a, such a florid and complicated name as Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band and such an incredibly florid and complicated cover than to go to a completely blank cover and a completely blank name. What an amazing art statement. Yeah, but we did the White Album. And I was just um, putting together some thoughts for the... Uh, for the quiz questions. I just came across a couple of things that I didn't actually know. And one is a story of, well, I suppose the continuing story, indeed, of Bungalow Bill. Do you know the story of Bungalow <laughs> no. Bill? No, go on, go on, go well, on. Well, Bungalow Bill, when they were out there uh, at Rishikesh, which is also <laughs> interesting in that they wrote, I think, 19 of the 30 songs that finished up on the record out there. And I think also possibly wrote things like Not Guilty and Child of Nature a.k.a. Jealous Guy and Junk and Sour Milk Sea and me, Mr. Butler. I mean, it was an incredibly productive period. But anyway, out there was, among the, 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 the group of people, was a PR woman who was the PR for the Maharishi, uh, a woman called Nancy. And uh, interesting, I think, that the, the, the Maharishi would have had a PR in his first place. But anyway, she was then assigned to the Beatles to look after the Beatles in case there was any kind of news problem with them being there that she could uh, would have to deal with. And her son was there, a guy called Richard A. Cook III, the Americans. And, uh, and while he was there, he, he went tiger hunting. <laughs> and and he, he and from a from a, a, a treehouse from a wooden platform. This isn't terribly uh, challenging. <laughs> I don't think, or not a lot of skill involved. He killed uh, a tiger, and then came back to the the camp uh, with his mum, and told the Maharishi and John Lennon all about it. Went this whole thing about how fantastic it was to kill this tiger. And uh, his mum was immensely proud of him, saying what a wonderful <laughs> thing he'd done. I know. Can you imagine? It was just all this terrible. Pause. I hate. I hate it when my kids do that. I know. <laughs> no, 
would have killed you've the got tiger. To be oh, don't. Whatever they've done, yeah, yeah. Whatever they've done, you've got to be supportive. Yes, he killed the tiger. What a man, you know. And uh, anyway, so he tells the Maharishi then is very, very skeptical and says, "You've done this terrible thing, you know. Um, you know, you have taken away a life, etc., etc." And he goes a bit quiet. Anyway, he's a bit more remorseful. John Lennon says absolutely nothing, I think, at all. And then several weeks later, he's back in America, and his sister says, "Come and listen to this. Have you heard the new?" Record well, the Beatles oh, come and really? listen to this song, and he plays him the song. And of course, there's a line that goes, He went out tiger hunting with his elephant and gun in case of accident. He always, he always took, his, took mom. his mum, he's yes. the all American bullet headed Saxon, Saxon mother's, mother's son. son. Can you imagine what you'd feel like if you heard <laughs> that and you knew that the song was about you? And this had the most powerful effect on the guy. And completely changed his life. <laughs> Extraction John Lennon was really thrilled. At this point, he stopped hunting and he took up photography and he became a wildlife photographer. And he worked for 22 years for National Geographic, taking and winning awards and stuff like that, and giving lectures and taking photographs of, of wildlife. Isn't that interesting? Do you think? I was just trying to imagine what it'd be like to 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 hear a song that was being played internationally and realise that it was about you. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's like. Uh, well, you know, like, like William Zanzinger listening to, yeah. uh, you know, just <laughs> hang on a second. That's pretty overt because actually has his name in it, you know. But anyway, so that was interesting. So but for the, rest, thing, for the rest of his life, you know, when he was in social occasions, when the, some, the conversation turned to the Beatles, he must have half wanted to tell people. Yeah. You know, there was, there was a song by the Beatles written about me. Written about Did me. you know that? Then, then simultaneously <laughs> immensely no. consumed with embarrassment, especially as a wildlife photographer who Absolutely. was very evangelical about the preservation of wildlife and the, the celebration of these beautiful creatures, to think that he had a past that was so terrible. John Lennon wrote a song about him. That sounds Oh, that was really interesting. I didn't know that at all. I didn't know that. And the other thing I, I, I discovered, which I didn't know, which is only a small thing, actually, is about Sexy Sadie, about the song Sexy Sadie, which, of course, is about the, uh, the, the, the Maharishi. And, uh, in fact, it was originally called Maharishi, wasn't it? And George Harrison said, you can't have a song called Maharishi because it's obviously about him. You can't do that. And um, But anyway, John Lennon left early, or, well, after Ringo, but before the other two, Ostensibly, he says, he says, because he objected to the Maharishi's treatment of women, didn't he? Do you remember that he yeah, was being yeah, yeah. he was being seedy and uh, and doing things that uh, attempting to do things that he thought were, were very very substandard, you know? And it's just interesting that that story was actually put about by Magic Alex, you know, their their yeah, their yeah. pal, their minder, you know, who was a classic case of uh, you know Magic Alex, uh, an attention seeking kind of narcissist who was always saying. I can do this. I can build you a studio. I can do whatever. Getting all the attention and delivering nothing. But anyway, Magic Alex bowled in one night, apparently, and went on about how he thought the Maharishi was trying to cop off with some of the girls and things. And, uh, and anyway, John wrote something about it. And since then, the one thing, if you said anybody, the Maharishi, they go, well, of course, you know, Maharishi, yeah. It's a, um, a fall from grace there. But there's a, I just discovered this thing which said that, um, you know, that, that there is absolutely no evidence for this at all. So McCartney and Harrison later discovered that the, the accusations to be untrue and John Lennon's wife, Cynthia, in, in the book she wrote, she reported there was not one shred of evidence or justification. 
I just thought that was really interesting. This is one of the first cases of, of cancelling, I think. You know, here's a guy whose career was completely cancelled by, which you cannot argue with. Everybody, the one thing everyone knows about the Maharishi was he was chasing after the girls, you know. Yeah. And uh, they're claiming that absolutely none of that happened. And John Lennon just took the story from Magic Alex and wrote a song about it. It was just so, hearsay. That's yeah. extraordinary. I thought it was interesting. Really interesting. It's amazing how the Beatles just keep on, you know, producing those stories. Well, it's like a few years ago. Ago. Neither you and I knew knew that um, uh, me, Mr. Mustard, was a real person. That's right. <laughs> until, until, I think we discovered that from a Mark Lewis. I listened Lecce, yeah, because Mark mean had Mr. found Mustard him. Was a guy lives he lives up there. Li- Mr. Mean Mr. Mustard lived not far from where I am now. Yeah, um, and uh, you know he's. Um, I think it was a divorce or something. Yeah, and his wife. It was mental cruelty or whatever because he was so mean. He, he, you know, he got, he got shaved in the dark, you know, all That's that. That's right. Kind of he wouldn't spend any money at all. So I've got my copy of the White Album in front of me, Mark. And the number, my number, my, you know, special number. Have you got your copy there? Oh, well, I have. Hang oh, on. God. Oh, this is like oh, Top this Trumps. This is Top Trumps. Oh, okay. Go okay. on. Okay. If, if mine's light lower than yours, do I get to keep both of them? <laughs> I'm looking at mine now, and you have won. I've got to tell you, you've won by several hundred thousand. Well, I don't know. Mine zero three eight nine seven hundred. I've beaten you. What? I bought this the day it came out. I've beaten you. I've zero two eight seven five three one. So surely that's mine's. you bought that um, the day it came out. It was already yeah, yeah. in the in the yeah. three hundred thousand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, definitely. Wow, how amazing! Oh God, well I think I win. Oh well, astonishing, astonishing. I'm not, I'm not giving you mine anyway. No, um, but it's that's just and it's, I, a lot of fun just digging around about that record. You know, also the thing about the tensions when they made it. You know, because suddenly Yoko Ono appears in the studio. Yeah, and so Paul McCartney goes, "Well, okay, fair enough." Brings in his girlfriend Francie Schwartz and she's there sitting there watching the record you know and then Patty Harrison came in and Maureen Starkey came in and uh it just it just it just it went from that kind of glorious thing the year before of everybody singing from the same hymn sheet to terrible uh, you know friction and, and tension didn't it you know and uh and there's a, a lovely thing about the uh the the box of cho- uh, um Savoy truffle about Clapton being obsessed, he's absolutely addicted to eating chocolates and ate a particular brand of chocolate, which contained the Savoy truffle. And was told by his dentist that, uh, that he'd done such uh, such terrible damage that he couldn't eat chocolates anymore. So George Harrison wrote Savoy truffle as a kind of joke, really, to torture him, just to list names of chocolates that he liked from his favourite box of chocolates. I never knew that one. No. Well, there you go. That's the White Album, which was the the answer in our Friday night quiz. And if you're a Patreon supporter, uh, you know, we'd like to see you there in future. Please be with us. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. So I've been I've been thinking about the question in the light of all these um financial institutions buying up the catalogues of legendary performers. Yeah, you know we've all read about that stuff, and you know, all in the hope that they're really sound investments, and that they will keep on, you know, the money will keep on rolling in from them, and they probably will. But 
it made me think about a whole business about which musical acts go down in history and which ones, regardless of their merits, just don't. And so it intrigues me that if you look in the kind of jazz, crooning, swing era, Frank Sinatra is still massively revered. Bing Crosby, not. No, not at all. And Frank Sinatra would be the first one to say that he wasn't fit to lace Bing Crosby's shoes. You know what I mean? So much of what he got, he got from Bing Crosby. And I'm just intrigued as to how that happened. And um, Isn't a lot of that, in, in the case of Sinatra, isn't a lot of that to do with the fact that it's the films? The films, the fashion, you know, he's, he's just, he's entrenched in so many different worlds. It's, 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 he's something much bigger than just a singer. Whereas Bill, Bill, Bing Crosby, although he did all those films, you know, that's not how you remember it. People just think of him as a singer. I suppose that, you know, people would say about Frank Sinatra, you know, if, if, if you ask them to choose an adjective to describe Frank Sinatra, I'm guessing here now, they would say cool. Yeah. And cool is the adjective that everybody uses nowadays in every context because it saves them having to be specific about whatever it is that they like. Yeah. You know, they, they just say cool. And that also just reflects me, well on them for it, thinking them cool. I, I suppose so. Whereas Bing Crosby, nobody ever accused of being cool, although he was. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it's like, side note, if you want to see the most extraordinarily accomplished um, thing you've ever seen on a cinema screen. Go and watch High Society and go and watch the scene where Bing in his hotel room um, sings, as it called, I Love You, Samantha. Mm. And as he's doing it, he he brushes off his coat, he ties a bow tie properly as he's singing it, he fills his cigarette case. Yeah. You know, he puts his cufflinks in. He does absolutely everything while singing I Love You, Samantha. It's just, and it's one that shot. It's incredible. It's well, just, the one shot where they record uh, Now You Has Jazz. Yeah. Remember yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Take some skins, jazz begins. Then you take a bass. Now we're getting someplace. Take a box on the rocks. That is all recorded completely live. So they're there in front of an audience. You know, there are microphones hanging up above them, but the version that came out in the film, the version that came out on the record, is the version that they film. It's phenomenal. You can't believe it. If you it listen to any of the any of the Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong duets, the level of accomplishment is just ridiculous. It is. There's nobody who can do what they did. Anyway, there's Bing Crosby, you know, kind of forgotten. And... You know, if you go in the 1920s, and I'm reading a couple of books about Bing Crosby recently, and the big star of jazz in the 1920s, the huge star, the man they called the king of jazz was Paul Whiteman, completely forgotten, probably largely because he was a white man. I mean, you know, and at that stage, the stars of jazz were white. And then later on, this was all kind of reversed, and the stars of jazz were African-American, you know, fair enough. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. But Paul Whiteman just got completely swept away in that change, you know. And then you go, you go further on, and you you go the era of the crooners and you know, and the, and the Emma middle of the road singers. And nobody talks about Andy Williams anymore, do they? No, nobody talks about Perry Como. These but people are absolutely do you've got to have a story. If you look at the the current hierarchy, the current hierarchy is entirely manufactured by TV and by feature films. The kind of people they make documentaries about, and so they are. Stones, the Beatles, Elton, Queen, Led Zeppelin, Dylan, yeah. aren't they? Nirvana, yeah. um, Nick Drake, Little Richard. Tragedies. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis, tragedy. Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, really good example. A, a, a really good example. Just the other night. And so, I mean, and I'm not saying they're not fantastic. Of course they're fantastic. But it's easy to construct. So Elvis, although Elvis actually might be tripped up, his, his legacy soon by this um, Sophia Coppola movie that's about to come out. But anyway, those people all have stories. The people, I think, that might are in danger of fizzling out, actually, in 10 or 20 years are people like Paul Simon, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, because there is no story about Paul Simon. You say Paul Simon somebody, immediately you just think of your favourite Paul Simon song. Yeah. If you say Nirvana, if you say um, Nick Drake... People have another view of it. They see it as a movie to which that was the soundtrack, uh, a slightly tragic movie. Johnny Cash, exactly. You say Johnny Cash, you don't think of his music, you think of Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison or whatever, or Johnny and June or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So I think that, I think the, the Eagles is another example. There's no great story. There is a good story about the Eagles. There's nothing classic. Joni Mitchell, no amazing story. I mean, there, there, if you get into it, it's extraordinary, but there's nothing really pronounced about her story that will make it make it um, that memorable. And there are certain groups that I feel now are, are slightly on the way out. The Doors is one. 
Yeah. I think um I think uh I think the Kinks is another actually. Yeah. The Kinks I can feel are just drifting towards the the horizon and they're gonna disappear from view in five or ten years' time. I don't really know why. I mean partly they don't exist. But there isn't any great story. They fell out. The two brothers fell out. They fell back together again, etc. So I think, A, a lot of it's to do with the fact that if it's a story, a sort of cinematic story, that will help immortalise you. And the other thing, I suppose, is that, is that people are going to drop off this perch because their evangelists, their supporters, are just going to themselves disappear. You okay. know, I, I don't know anybody. You know, when, when we were at... Um, when we were at Smash Hits and stuff, there was a guy there called Fred Dell. Do you remember the one yeah, Fred? Yeah, yeah. Fred, who was considerably older than us. And Fred was, a, was I think, a, a member of, wasn't he, the, the Frank Sinatra fan club. Yep. And Fred <laughs> yeah, would absolutely. go on about acts from the 1950s and acts from pre-1950s uh, with an, an amazing enthusiasm. And there are no equivalents of people like Fred no. left doing that anymore. Mm. So uh, it's interesting. So, you, but you're absolutely right. The ones who get uh, get uh, get remembered aren't necessarily the ones of uh, of, of, of of enormous worth. They're I mean, just... is any, is anybody playing a Buddy Holly record tonight? No, or an Everly bro- Brothers record. Buddy Holly completely completely <laughs> fading away. And these are great artists. Yeah, yeah, and they've been absolutely astonishing in his case. And but it's movies. also it's also what happens in the kind of radio and the media background. In that the, the, they're constantly redefining what is a, a, an acceptable oldie. So an oldie used to mean a record from the 1950s, and then it was a record yeah. from the 1960s. Well, currently yeah. it's a record from the 1990s is an oldie. Yeah. And anything older, anything from the 70s sounds quaint yeah. to, to anybody listening to kind of magic radio or whatever. Um, let alone anything from the fifties. Yeah, and uh, you know, so this stuff just drops out of out of contention. And it's interesting that uh, the the kind of the jukebox musicals, um, which have been so, so successful in the West End and on Broadway and all over the world, I'm sure, in the last twenty years or whatever, must be a conscious effort on the part of copyright holders to just try and get people interested in them again. So Jersey Boys, which has been running for ages in the West End, I think probably still is, it, it, that's, the four, that's the attempt to keep the four, eight, four seasons on the planet, isn't it? But yeah. it's, called, it's called Jersey Boys. It's not called the Four Seasons. And um, Ain't Too Proud, um, which opened in the West End recently, is an attempt to do the same thing with The Temptations. Yeah. <laughs> you know... And I grew up with the Temptations and the Four Tops and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And you thought that music would never go away. Well, it kind of has done, I think. It has. Tragically. You yeah, know. No, but it's the, it's, it's the ones that tick everyone. Bob Marley is a really good example, I think. Bob Marley, tragically young when he died. Yeah. But also, you look at the ingredients in that story, yeah. where he came from, um, his parents, <laughs> the young mother and the... And the white father, yeah. you know, the early days forming the group and, and rehearsing in the graveyard, um, the politics, the religion, Rastafari, being at the airport when Haile Selassie uh, arrived in Jamaica, um, you know, the assassination attempt. Um, it's just, and, and the, being the first, you know, the first third world superstar, as it were. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that, oh, every single element of that is fantastic and also producing an incredible collection of really good songs that work on the radio. That's another thing. If you don't work on the radio, you know. I was I was really really in interview with David Furnish recently, who is kind of Elton John's de facto manager, and you were talking about the um, you know the Rocket Man and, and all this stuff. Yeah, and what they found scored most highly with Elton with young people around Elton John was the story about being gay. And the stories yeah. of his addictions. It wasn't about his music at all. Oh, really? It was, it was it was the drama of his life. And so when you make a film about him in the twenty first century, that's the stuff you put to the fore. Yeah. The kind of the tragedy you know, the tragedy. You know. This is my truth. That's all so the, true. All those no. things all those things that are kind of social media, you know, tropes. You know, that's what you put it for. And that's what you have to do with all these people to keep them in the forefront of public attention. You have to just kind of, you have to, you don't have to so much have to reinvent the music. You have to reinvent the personality. Yeah. You know, with a different edge that just appeals to however the world is that you're, yeah. that you're launching it. But that's into. so true because people who couldn't sing you a single Elton John song, you know, I've talked about people in their 20s and 30s, they will nearly always tell you, Elton John, isn't that the guy who once rang up his manager from a hotel room and said, it's too windy outside, I don't like the weather. Can you do something about it? You know what I mean? It's yeah. tantrums and tiaras, isn't it? It's the, it it's is. The, it's, it's, the, it's the tennis match that everyone remembers. Yeah. Nothing, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So here's my prediction. Uh, you know, I think you need a really good story to build a legend on. And, and that's why I predict, sad but true, that Dave Clark 5 will be completely forgotten, but Badfinger will live on. Yes. Because somebody will make a film about Badfinger. Yeah. Because it's such a sad story that they're bound to. And you've got a sad story and fantastic music. And I think that was that was what made Nick Drake, what brought Nick Drake back. It's not just the quality of the music, it's the sadness. It's yeah. the it's the attachment of sadness, you know. He, he didn't get his shot. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And when you listen to Nick Drake's music, you immerse yourself in that notion don't you that's what you tend to think about nick drake and nick drake's life actually yeah and uh, how that colors uh, how that colors the way the music sounds yeah so, so yes talking to nick, nick drake we're returning to uh live events aren't we mark what's the we date are? can't remember is it 25th of jan is it 25th of jan? Yeah, 25th of september what we're talking about 25th of september quite soon that's mark ellis my agent 25th of jan <laughs> <laughs> what is it 25th of september yeah and we're uh, we got a new home, which is Twenty One Soho, which is um, very very close, just walking distance from Tottenham Corrode Tube Station. And we're starting on that date. And we've got Richard Morton Jack talking about his book about Nick Drake, and also Kathy Unsworth talking about everything concerned with uh, with with goth, the world of goth, with the world of goth. So, you know, goth, do, uh, goth mothers and goth fathers, which are really interesting, isn't it? All the authors and all the, all the characters from cultural history that she feels are kind of honorary goths. It's, it's really good. She's terrific. They're both very, very entertaining talkers. 
So come and join us. Details below. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. It's a birthday podcast special slot and uh, the birthday guest is Geltex. Very nice to see you, Geltex. Uh, a great uh, long-time supporter of the pod. And, and he doesn't a, look a day older, does he? He doesn't look a day older, that's right. Well, and you have a question you wanted to put to the, the panel. Uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts a few weeks ago, and I, and I remembered a, uh, there was a legendary album that, uh, well, a, a review popped up on in sounds by the the... the heavy metal correspondent. Was it Malcolm Dome or was he? Oh, Malcolm? I remember Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. he was on and, and And um, it, was the, it was the album that we all wanted because he raved about it so much yet no one had. It was Live at Budokan by the Michael Schenker Group. <laughs> Did you eventually get it? <laughs> I've never had it. I, 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 I moved over to uh, synth pop and indie music the year later, so... Uh, the window passed. So I'm just wondering, was there an album when you were growing up that uh, you really, uh, you really, you know, that, that all you and all your friends wanted and you, you, you never could get? Oh, right. Well, there was, I can remember there were some that were considered to be very, very cool that Ron was talking about. My hard to get older was uh, Tim Buckley's um, Goodbye and Hello, The Madcap Laughs by Sid Barrett. Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. I remember that was a big thing. And, and uh, John Phillips' solo album. The, the record I always wanted was The Great White Wonder, which was the bootleg, the Bob Dylan bootleg, which everybody, uh, you know, went on about. It was incredibly hard to get hold of. And uh, I didn't hear it till years later. Don't know. Dave, have you got any? Anything right. you... I mean, at the time, you know, people couldn't afford any records. You know, you used to go and visit people who had records yeah. that you didn't have because you had no hope of getting them. I would advance the theory, possibly a bold one, that all records recorded at the Budokan aren't very good. They all, <laughs> sound, they all sounded really exotic and really exciting, generally because you couldn't get them. Because usually they were Japanese imports, yes? Mm-hmm. Particularly in the 70s and 80s. And the Japanese imports were usually very lavishly packaged and very beautiful vinyl. And you know, 80 gram. It probably was. It was really ounces. It was ounces in those days, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've got, I think I've got weather report in Tokyo at the Budokan. And uh, I've got cheap trick at the Budokan. Oh, that's good. And uh, there's something about the Budokan that sort of, it, it was never quite, um, you never quite got the hysteria that you, you, you ought to have, really. You know? Was that, that to do with the nationality of the audience, though, who are quite I, restrained? I tell you, it's, it's particularly interesting at the beginning. Like the Santana's Lotus. Three uh, three record sets. Stop me if I'm boring you. Recorded at the Budokan. Do you know what the opening track is? Do you know what the opening track is? Go on. It's a minute's silence, oh which, the, which the audience rigorously observe. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it starts Go with silence, mm-hmm. and then they slowly try, try, <laughs> try that at Donington. Try that at Donington, mate. That's what I'm gonna say. So, uh, so did you ever get that record in the end? I, I, no, I, ne- I, I never, never got it. But years later, about six years ago, we actually went to Tokyo on holiday, All right. uh, uh, and we were we we had a guide, and we were standing on the 
imperial palace looking out over the ancient uh tokyo skyline ignoring the the the, the you know the, the modern stuff and our guide pointed out that we see that building there that's the budokan there you go and that's as close i've ever i ever got well it, you know what the budokan is mainly used for wrestling was it Yes, okay. that was that was its primary use. It was, it was sumo wrestling, you know, in in use every night, apart from on on, on Saturday evenings with Miles when, Davis and Cheap Trick, <laughs> <laughs> Block and Santana or something like that. Then it, then it was back to the grip and grin, you know. On the volume. Isn't that isn't that an indication as, as to why it might not be sonically ideal it's for a good, uh, you know? Purpose-built yeah. venues are slightly different from places that are normally, you know, wrestling. I have, to, I have to tell you, I've only been to Japan once, and it's many, many, God, it's nearly 40 years ago now. And on the flight to Japan, which went to Tokyo, which went via Anchorage, Alaska, because wow. it, it went round that way in those days. Do you know, we shared our uh, our flight with a bunch of returning sumo wrestlers who'd just come back from doing an event in Paris. Now, <laughs> How many seats did they have to have? There you go. There you go. You know, if, if you're going to be in a queue in the galley or for the gents, then the last thing you want in the world is a, is a bunch of sumo, sumo wrestlers stuck in there. <laughs> trying to get out. Unbelievable <laughs> amounts of space. Let me oh, no. Yeah. It, we, yeah, we were on the metro and uh, uh, waiting for the, the train. The train arrived, the doors opened, and this sumo, sumo wrestler came out filling the doorway. This is it. They do. <laughs> they have a special soup, don't they, to make them really fat. And then they have a huge great lunches. Then they sleep for two hours in order that they shouldn't lose any of that weight. Okay. It's, the, it's the opposite of whatever. God, what's in the with. soup? How fascinating. There's a special soup. I remember seeing a film about this, absolutely. Yeah. Lard. Lard <laughs> soup. <laughs> but the benefit of this conversation, I'm an expert on sumo wrestlers. So, yes. Uh, so, well, it, it obviously wasn't to be if you weren't to get that record, no. but, you know, it's obviously it's better in your imagination than it would be on your shelves. That's my, uh, I believe my comfort, so, yeah. comfort prediction. But happy birthday as of last week. I'm sorry yeah. we were a bit late catching up with you. And um, thank you for your support. No, that's fine. Great Lost Album. Oh, right, go on. Go this on. is Married Alive by The Mood Elevator. All right. Uh, you've you've probably heard of Brendan Benson. Oh yes, I have. Go on. Yeah, Jack in what White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the and Tours. Well, his backing yeah. band were called the um, the Well Fed Boys, but the, uh, the 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 other guitarist Chris Plum's a really good vocalist, and so this is the the album that Brendan Benson's band recorded, but instead of Brendan on vocals, it's Chris Plum. Right. Uh, it's it's really really good. I think it's better than any Brendan Benson album, to be honest with you. What's it called again? One married, more time. Married great alive. Title. That's a married great, alive. That's a great title. Yeah. Uh, married it's, alive. It's, it's it's a it's an it's an album with an arc. You know, uh, relationship goes to pot, and then his ex gets married, All and right. his his reaction at the wedding and stuff. Really good album. All right, well, consider it plugged. Thank you very much for that. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. And now we welcome another of our valued Patreon supporters uh, to celebrate on the occasion of his birthday, or pretty near his birthday, Avi Chowdhury. Avi, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, David. Uh, It's very nice to see you. 
And happy when, birthday. When, when was the birthday? The birthday was actually in February. Uh, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> God, it's taken a long time to organise this. You but, shy um, devil. <laughs> but but my, my birthday present, or one of my birthday presents, was a dose of COVID. So, oh, um, Lord. Oh, dear. That, That's that a knocked serious... me out um, of doing the Not part. since February, I hope. Not since February, no. Oh, so, you. So, what's the uh, what's the log that you've got to throw on the fire on this occasion, or question, well, or whatever assertion, whatever you want to do? It's an unusual topic, but one that's been kind of playing on my mind recently. Bill Wyman. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> um, I haven't thought about Bill Wyman for for many years because, um, well, why would you? Yeah, yeah. But um, it, he's come up a couple of times recently. Um, First of all, in the Brian Jones documentary. Oh, yes, Wasn't of course. Wasn't he fantastic in that? Brilliant, but, but weirdly filmed on an iPhone. Absolutely. Yes, very, very badly filmed. But he was well, so no, But not badly filmed at all. Nick Broomfield, I spoke to Nick Broomfield about doing this because they weren't going to shoot. Nick Broomfield's plan was when he was doing making that film, he said, you don't want to get all these old legends on camera because they look so terrible. He said, people are, are so distracted by what they look like. You're not listening to a word they're saying. So the idea was they would always be, they'd be out of shot. They'd just disembodied voices. But he got Bill Wyman, and Bill Wyman was on such form. He thought, we've got to start filming this. And then he had a film crew, and they started dicking around doing what film crews usually do. So, oh, not enough light in here. Can we move the sofa over there? Can we move the house a few feet to the left? All that stuff. And Nick Brimfield said, no, don't bother. Just pulled out his mobile phone, held it up to him for about half an hour, and he was absolutely fantastic. He was fantastic. He was so, so insightful, wasn't he? Oh, God. And he talked about, he said, he said just, just listen to this little tiny bit here, and you could hear the bit that Brian's playing. A little yeah. bit of bits of guitar embroidery, which I thought was yeah. really, and he was so uncynical and generous as well. I know, yeah. and and it, it sort of got me to thinking because one of my birthday presents was um, a book about Charlie Watts called Charlie's Good Tonight, All right. um, and and obviously Bill Wyman features in that, and it just got me to thinking about what a what a weird and incongruous figure he is because he was he was born in nineteen thirty six, so oh, yeah. he's yeah. He's actually closer in age to Elvis than, yeah. Yeah. Than, than Nick or Keith. So that was one thing. He's in that sort of elite group of, of rock stars who did national service. Absolutely. There's not many of them. Yeah. And his he changed his name from Bill Perks to Bill Wyman after a, a mate of his in the army, which seems a very odd thing to do. Um, that, so, I, thought, I always thought it was a cowboy. Okay, well, well you might be you're probably right. Well, yeah. I mean, but this is this is Wikipedia. So. Right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so all that was, was very odd. And I record seeing a um, a documentary that they they released at the uh, the time of the, um, the, the the special edition of Exile on Main Street, and they were all talking about Nelcott and you know tales yeah. of rock and roll excess. And in the middle of all that, Bill Wyman popped up, complaining about the fact that you couldn't get birds custard in the south. <laughs> and I just, you know, this guy is 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 just—he doesn't fit in at all. And yet, he's the one person to complain to to to, to claim on record 
Je suis un rockstar. Je suis, si, je suis. Non, but didn't he get the job effectively because he had a van? Or was, I'm not being. No, he didn't have a van. Ian Stewart had a van. No, but Bill, he, he had a, yeah, he had a bass amp. I think he had a bass amp. Or something. Something like yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, they, and, they liked uh, his equipment. <laughs> yes. So to speak. It's yeah. it, it's, I always think that Bill Wyman is not so much a member of the Rolling Stones, but a witness to the Rolling Stones. He was a kind of, he was under deep cover, you know, he was a, he was a sleeper in the Rolling Stones. Well, he's a great archivist, isn't he? He, he was. Yeah. Well, he famously wrote down the name of every woman he slept with in the, in the 1960s and 70s. Well, didn't um, they ring him up at one point and keep asking him questions about what he was doing on certain days and all that? And he sort of said, Look, are you by any chance writing a memoir? And you've forgotten because I'm not giving you all this information. Didn't that happen? It, it didn't. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Because he written Mick's, it all Mick's down. memoir's never happened, has it? Mick's I, no. Mick gave the money back. He had to, yes, now, that's, un, that's pretty unique. Yeah, I didn't know. So, he got a lot of money, he started doing it, and then he thought, no, I don't feel like this. So, he gave the money back. And again, I give Mick Jenker points for doing that. Because the other thing I have to throw in on the subject of Bill Wyman, because it's still my favourite story, and he told me this a few years ago, about when he tried to leave the Rolling Stones. He said, said, next talk, next tour, you've farted out too long, I've got a restaurant to run, I've got all this stuff to do. Count me out. Two years later, they rang him up and said, right, we're starting to rehearse in next week, Canada, whatever. He says, no, I told you to count me out. We thought you were joking. So you couldn't believe it. What? <laughs> Who would leave the Rolling Stones? Well, I am. You know, no, but the, it's just, I think it's I a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story yes. because it indicates if you're a member of the Rolling Stones, there's no HR department you can hand in your notice to. You know, it doesn't, it, no, seriously, it's not like anything else, is it? You're in it for life unless yeah. something really odd happens, you know. And, uh, and he said, he gave an interview the other week where he said, I've not regretted it at all. You see, and uh, they've had 25 years without him, haven't they? The yeah. current guy, the current guy has been playing bass in the Rolling Stones longer, longer than, than Bill. Bill Wyman. Absolutely. It's just incredible. Yeah. Extraordinary. But he, I like but, that idea that if it was an H-style relationship, you, you, you then have to have kind of periodical kind of uh, reviews about how it's going. Yeah. You know, performance reviews. You could have said. going for you. Where then, do you see yourself in five you years? <laughs> we don't see you in the band. <laughs> <laughs> I see myself running a restaurant in King's That's Road. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'd be yeah. very happy actually. Well, yeah. anyway, but he, I don't. But they were there were a series of programs on the BBC called My Life as a Rolling Stone. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and there was one about Charlie Watts, one about me, one about. There wasn't one about Bill, was there? No. Well, he left by but the there time. There was they about did it. Ronnie Wood. Was one about Ronnie? Well, he is a Rolling Stone. Well, they, you see, they, that was the film they made when they were effectively a four piece. Yeah. And and so they couldn't revisit it really with Bill. Which yeah. Is, uh, and of course, to, to me, there'll only ever be one Rolling Stones, which is the kind of original five piece. Sure. Everything else, except no imitations. But anyway, um, well, it's always good to you know, it's always good to catch up. And to it talk about these, these important issues. Important things. <laughs> uh, Bill Wyman, that's lovely. I haven't thought about him for ages. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope he appreciates it. it. I, I'm yeah. sure he listens. I'm sure oh, he I'm does. Sure. I'm sure yeah. he does. He'd be well, mortified look, to hear that thing about how what pe- Broomfield thought people looked like when they were over a certain age <laughs> on the film. But anyway. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.